In the New Testament, it describes that part of Jesus going through trial, testing, and temptation was so that he would be able to identify with us. That he would be a perfect high priest that when you come to him and say, yeah, but Lord, you don't know what I'm going through. He would say, yes, I do. I've been there. And I know how to win. C.S. Lewis put it this way when he talked about temptation. He said that only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. You see, part of what Matthew's going to emphasize in this chapter is the humanity of Christ. And so if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're doing the first 11 verses today. And, and what I'd like to do is uh, go ahead and pull that up and I'll just read this to you and then we'll come back and break down some of what Jesus is doing. So it says, right after his baptism, okay, this is right after the Father said, this is my Son whom I love and him I am well pleased and the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove as he passed through the waters of baptism. Like, highlight moment. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up onto the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now this is a fascinating event in the life of Jesus, partly because how did we get this story? This isn't one of the things that Matthew witnessed or Luke was there for or that, that John could have seen. The only way that his followers get this story is if Jesus tells them what happened. Did you ever think about that? It's just Jesus in the wilderness with the enemy, but for some reason, he knew they needed this. And I think part of that is because of how Matthew's emphasizing his humanity. Because think about it, later in this same book, Jesus is going to say things like, don't worry about what you wear or what you will eat. Well, if you're following Jesus and he's God, 
Like, easy for you to say, Jesus, you've never been hungry. Easy for you to say, Jesus, you could just snap your fingers and turn stones into bread. Easy for you to say, Jesus. So I think part of why he tells them this happened is so they realize he has been hungry. He knows what it's like to be at your most desperate, to feel like you are at your weakest, to feel like you are your most vulnerable and have the enemy hit you as hard as he can and yet you stand up under the pressure. That Jesus is setting an example for them to say, I have been where you are. Whatever you feel like you're going through this week, whatever you feel like you're tempted by, tested by, tried by, Jesus is saying, I know what that's like. You can have victory. So think about this. This is kind of like, this is kind of like trivia. Sometimes I like to ask these questions because it helps me think about how Jesus is fulfilling things. Who is it, right? Can you think of the moment when one who is called the Son of God comes out of Egypt passes through the water, and then goes into the wilderness for 40 years? Days? Right? You realize this is exactly what Israel went through. Israel in the book of Exodus is referred to as the Son of God. They come out of Egypt, pass through the water, go into the wilderness. That's why as we've been looking at this series at how God was laying out the course in the Old Testament for what Jesus would be in the New Testament, you can see from that top right corner how we're just moving right down along this course as Jesus fulfills all of it. That now it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? He was literally just called that at his baptism, passed out of Egypt through those waters of baptism, and now he's in the wilderness as well. In fact, this is not just, uh, this doesn't just work with the golf metaphor. This comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so if you look there, this is when God's people are about to go into the promised land. They've just come through that whole wilderness season. And look at how similar this is. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you. Why? To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Where have I heard that before? Oh, Jesus just quoted that. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son... So the Lord your God chastens you. Matthew's picking up on every beat of that historical moment here in the life of Jesus. That he's in the wilderness, that he's hungry, that it's a period of 40 units of time. That the point of it is to test and see if he's ready to obey the Father even when he's hungry. The, this is Jesus' sand trap moment. The same sand trap that Israel has gone through, now Jesus is going to go through. And so you look at these first two verses, because even, even just the setup is a little bit mind-boggling. Look at verse 1. Do you notice that it said, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? 
It wasn't just something that sort of accidentally happened. And so Jesus was shopping one day, and he totally didn't expect it. And here comes the devil out of nowhere. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The same Spirit that was just there at his baptism, part of the celebration, part of the party. Like, shouldn't we go straight from there to doing miracles and healing people? Like, what are you doing, Spirit? This is a mistake. (laughs) And yet, there's something unique going on here. Because that word tempted, it can also be translated as tested. And that's helpful to know because when we hear tempted or temptation, we pretty much only think of that as like tempted to do evil. And we know from other places in Scripture, God does not tempt us to do evil, right? Although we definitely face that in our lives. He allows that. And so sometimes you'll see this translated as tempted. Sometimes you'll see it translated as tested. And so almost always when you see one of those words in the New Testament, there's one Greek word behind it that kind of means both things. Because essentially what's happening here, the idea is that this is a testing to either develop or to prove character. Right? That when we face a trial, a temptation, or a test in our lives, that's actually an opportunity for victory. That God says, this is going to help you grow. And I know it's like in in the back of my head, I used to watch this show when I was a kid where there was a little boy who was always complaining about what his dad was making him mow the lawn and whatever else. And the dad is always like, it builds character. (laughs) I got enough character. You can keep the trials to yourself, right? But this is part of what God uses this for in our lives. It's, It's to develop and to prove character. So there are times where you may face the same trial, the same temptation, the same test, and you say, hey, I recognize this. I've been here before. I know how to win this battle. And that's what it's doing for Jesus. That it's important here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that he has an opportunity to demonstrate his perfect willingness to be perfectly obedient to his heavenly father. And so he faces this enemy that's called the devil. And you're probably like aware by now this is not red pajamas and a pitchfork, right? But actually the word devil is the Greek word diabolos, like, like diabolical. So it's actually not like his name. In fact, the Hebrew word Satan, that that we pronounce Satan, is actually not his name either. Both of those words are are translations of each other that mean slanderer or accuser. That one of the primary functions of our enemy is to slander and accuse. I I heard one speaker put it this way, that if, you know, you, you think about like the red letter Bible where everything Jesus says is in red ink. If you had a brown letter Bible where everything the enemy said, wherever Satan spoke, it was in brown, it only shows up three places. In Genesis 3, where he slanders God to men. Did God really say that? Is that really how God's going to work? In Job, where he slanders man to God. You really think Job loves you? It's only because you bless him. And here, where he tries to slander the God-man himself. And Jesus is going to stand up to this temptation. Jesus is going to do what Israel never could. You see, when he's faced with the trial, when he's faced with the enemy himself, he proves that Jesus is the faithful fulfillment of Israel's ill-fated failure. 
You see, the picture that God painted for his people was that through their obedience, when they came into the promised land, it was through them that he was going to bless the entire world. Show them his mercy, show them his grace, show them his forgiveness, show them his love. But they failed the test. But God doesn't scrap the plan. Instead, God says what he's known since before the beginning of time, that the Messiah is coming who will fulfill every single piece of it. To bring that love, to bring that truth, to bring that forgiveness, to bring that mercy so that every nation of the world can be blessed. Jesus is the faithful fulfillment of Israel's ill-fated failure. So look at this first temptation in verse 3. I think it's really intriguing to me that as you come to these things, it's not necessarily the obvious stuff. Like, they probably fit in the obvious categories that, that John talks about later. It's, it's the temptation of the flesh. It's the temptation of the eyes. It's the temptation of pride. And yet, the enemy doesn't come to Jesus and say, like, hey, man, you want to go get drunk on Friday night? Yeah, Jesus would be like, no, I don't. <laughs> Look at how the enemy begins. If you are the Son of God. They say you're Messiah. They say that he loves you. I know, I saw the baptism too. If you are the Son of God, the first thing he attacks is Jesus' identity in his Father. To try to get just a little bit of doubt, maybe just a little bit of mistrust, maybe to just start to pick up a little bit on, hey, you claim you have a mission here. Well, if that's really true, prove it. Command that these stones become bread. Remembering that Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, that's got to sound pretty good. And yet Jesus answers him with Scripture. He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That comes right out of Deuteronomy 8, exactly what we just saw that describes how Jesus' moment is just like Israel's moment. So I love that when the enemy comes after Jesus, when he comes after you to try to get you to doubt your identity in your heavenly father. Best response? Hey man, you say what you want, but I know what God said. Right? Like, do you know your Bible well enough to speak truth back to the enemy when you feel like you're in the wilderness? Right? Not, not just do you have some vague sense of God exists and he is love and I'm trying to be a good person. Like Jesus directly quotes scripture to push the enemy back. I think that's such a cool picture. And, it, and it, at first it can make it sound like that's just easy for Jesus. But you notice how, like Israel demanded food in the wilderness and then died in the wilderness, Jesus resists it in the wilderness and proves his perfect obedience. Now again, this, this can come across as like easy for Jesus to do. He's God, right? But that's why you have to remember that he's been fasting. Like he is physically weak just like we are. And I had a lunch with a buddy this week that was just saying how, you know, it's those moments when you're the most tired, the most stressed, the most hungry. Like, really? That's when I'm most susceptible to temptation because you just don't have the physical and mental energy to fight back sometimes. And this is what C.S. Lewis found when he first became a Christ follower because for him, Jesus had always been like a non-issue. Maybe he's a moral teacher. I don't know. But it was really a logical pursuit first and foremost. Is God even real? 
if God is real, is it really the God of the Bible? If it is the God of the Bible, is the Bible really true? And if the Bible's really true, is Jesus really who he says he is? Did he really do those things? Did he really rise from the dead? And so a lot of C.S. Lewis' journey, as he describes it, is cerebral, right? It's mental. It's working through these kinds of questions. And what he found was uh, somewhat shocking and especially difficult that he kind of works through in his book, Mere Christianity, is that once he came to the cerebral, logical ascent of Jesus really is the Savior, then all of a sudden it's not so logical anymore. Now it's incredibly practical. Like now Jesus is actually asking him to obey something that he's reading in the Bible. Now he's supposed to live this out. And it turns out that's a whole lot harder than C.S. Lewis expected. And so as he faced temptation, this is, this is like my all-time favorite quote about temptation because it just gets so real. He says that a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. Right? They're good people. They, they aren't tempted because they're good. Well, this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. I mean, the first time I read that, I was like, oh my goodness, that's exactly what it is. Like, there's this moment where temptation flies in front of your face and you think, no, no, I'm not supposed, no. And now you can't stop thinking about it. No, no, it's like the first 30 seconds, you feel like a champ. Five minutes later, it's a whole lot harder. An hour later, if the enemy keeps coming after you, it feels a whole lot harder. Dear Lord, I thought I resisted this an hour ago. Why am, why am I feeling tempted again? That's what C.S. Lewis discovered in his journey of following Christ. That whether you want to call it spiritual warfare or whether it's just the life that we are living here, it's real and it's difficult and it's hard to overcome. And if we try to overcome it on our own, we will fail just like Israel did. You know, the point that he made earlier is that none of us have done this perfectly. No human being can say that they have always resisted temptation. And any honest human being would say they've given in many times. And yet here comes Jesus. Right? This is part of why it's so crucial that he is fully God and fully human. Because as fully God, he can actually resist temptation every time. But as fully human, he can understand it like we do and pass the test on our behalf. And so the second thing that Matthew's giving us is to glorify Jesus for being faithful on your behalf. Guys, this is why we can take hold of the blessing that we sung about. This is why we can talk about eternal life and forgiveness and mercy. Because the one who took the sacrifice on the cross for us had no sin of his own to die for. That's why his death and his life can be applied to us. Because he was faithful and obedient every single time. In fact, there are a lot of things, and we're going to see them as we go through Matthew. Miracles, right? Walking on water and raising the dead and things that you're like, wow, Jesus is God. That's, a, that's amazing. I, I could never do that. Like, go, go ahead. Go, look, there's a pond right out here. You want to try walking on water after the service. You'll be there all afternoon. I, th I think Chad did it in a big bubble once, but that doesn't count. That's, that's cheating. <laughs> 
Here's my point, though. Like, we know that, right? We know that if you and I head over to the graveyard after this, we're not raising anybody from the dead. But sometimes we don't realize Matthew chapter 4 is every bit as amazing as raising the dead to life. Every bit as amazing as healing a man who's never walked in his life and sending him home walking, leaping, jumping, skipping, and celebrating. Because he's doing something here that you could never do no matter how hard you tried. Friends, Jesus is amazing. And we glorify him for that. And so you come to this second temptation. It says the devil took him up to the pinnacle of the temple And he starts the same way. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then this is interesting. Because Jesus combated him with scripture. Now look how the enemy tries to use scripture. This next piece that he says, this is the enemy. The enemy knows his Bible pretty well apparently. Jesus knows his better. But he actually quotes, this is from Psalm 91 saying that it's written, he'll give his angels charge over you, they'll bear you up so you don't dash your foot against a stone. So if you are the son of God, won't your father protect you? Isn't that part of this whole thing? It's almost like he has a sense of the mystery that something about the Messiah, even if you die, dude, work out? Prove it. Cast yourself down. That's a whole lot like Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve where the enemy just takes the words of God but twists it a little bit. And so I think one of the challenges for us that we're watching here with Jesus, like, do I know my Bible well enough that I can tell when the enemy is even twisting God's words? Because Jesus knows there's another place that says, now you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, remember that could be the word test. Don't put him to the test. Right? What Jesus is saying is, if I trust, if I know that my Father has my good in mind, if I trust and I know that my Father has a plan, then I want to do the plan the way my Father has it set up. I'm not going to demand some miraculous protection as if to prove God really is God, God really loves me, God really has a plan. Right? Jesus is saying, I, I don't need to jump off of here to find out. If my heavenly father knows what he's doing, I trust him. I'm going to stand right here in confidence in what he has said to me. Instead of demanding the miraculous, he chooses to trust and he chooses to obey. Guys, I think that is one of the hardest places to resist temptation. To to stand up under a trial and a test. And I've seen this in the life of a friend of mine over the last couple of weeks, part of a men's group that I'm in here at Horizon. And he came into our group a couple of weeks ago and just said, "Um, so guys, I know I've been out for a few weeks, but here's what's been going on, and I just want to share this with you. And he shared just a really um, devastating diagnosis with us. And it's kind of a a long-range diagnosis so that he's got years ahead where he's looking at years that he's going to lose because of what's going on in his body. And so as we gathered around him to to pray for him, you know, just to to huddle around him, you know, we're asking him, hey, man, like, we're obviously praying for healing. And he mentioned Psalm 91. Right? Because even though the enemy tried to twist it, that is from God. (laughs) Psalm 91 is true. It's a real promise. 
And yet processing, what does it mean? In fact, it's possible that that psalm, more than a promise that like you'll never get sick in your life, in which case, well, that psalm didn't work, (laughs) right? That it may actually be a spiritual warfare psalm. And uh, Chad and I talked about this ahead of time. So I can tell you, if you check out the Pathway video this afternoon, Chad's going to dig a little bit deeper into what does it look like to think of Psalm 91, not just as sort of a vague prayer of protection, but if it's something that we actually carry into spiritual warfare, just like Jesus did. Because as my friend was praying through this psalm, he said a big part of it is knowing that I don't have to be afraid of any of those things. That psalm calls out, I will not fear. So he said, so here's what I want you to pray for me. Would you guys just pray that God would keep giving us, my wife, my kids, as I've shared this with them, that he would give us our daily bread. Just what we need for this moment, for this day, so that we can be obedient to him. I just want to keep trusting him. He also shared in a text with me later a verse out of 2 Timothy that reminds us that God does not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love, and sound mind, or sometimes it's translated self-control. And as I listened to that, it just, as I asked him if I could share this with you, it just sounded so much like Jesus. Because Jesus is not in the wilderness alone. The Spirit led him there. The same Spirit of power and love and self-control is available to us. And, and so I know he might push back on this if I, if I say it this way to you, but um, too bad because it's true. When I watch how my friend is walking through this, I see Jesus. He's facing the test the same way that Jesus did and choosing to trust and choosing to obey. And so for Jesus, the enemy has one more thing in mind in verse 8. It says that he's taking him up to an exceedingly high mountain. Now, we don't know exactly where this mountain is, but I've got a picture of one you can go to real quick because I just want you to see what this would have been like. This is one that they think might be the actual one, and whenever they think they might have found something, they always build a church there. So there's like a church in the side of a mountain. But I want you to get the kind of a view that Jesus would have had. Breathtaking and beautiful. Because then in verse 8 and 9, the challenge of the enemy is that he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says... I'll give you these if you bow down to me. You worship me and I'll give you everything. And so there's a piece of this that feels like, what a ridiculous, why even? No, worship the devil. Right, like Jesus is going to become a Satanist. And yet, think about what the devil's offering him. All the kingdoms of the world. Jesus could be king over every kingdom. Okay, I think I'm getting a little confused now because the the Bible does say he is king of kings, right? It actually does say that he will rule and every knee will bow and see how the enemy twists it again. The enemy is actually offering him the same thing that the Father has planned for him. We know from Old Testament and New that Messiah will be king of kings over all of the earth. So, It's almost as if instead of saying, hey, let's try to get you off track, if the enemy says, hey, let's just see if we can get there faster. There's got to be an easier way than what God is saying. I mean, I know God wants this for you, but I think he's telling you to do it like this, this, and this, and that sounds hard, and I don't like that. Let's try it this way. You you bow to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms, and, and we're there. That's it, right? 
Sometimes the enemy is so tricky like that. I think that's one of the easiest ways for us to get sidetracked. Like there's the obvious stuff. Like if you're sitting here this morning and like, you know, you have an issue with substance abuse or if gossip is something that you're giving into every day or, or one that I've been kind of working on in the last year is like complaining. It is so easy to complain. And like, well, not to this person, this person, or this person. They would think less of me. But wait till I get home and my family can hear all of it, right? Like, man, that stuff's easy to give into. And you can trick yourself, right? You can say, well, no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm trying to help. I just figure if I point out where we have some problems, Right? I hear so many young couples when you share a picture of what God's design for marriage is like. And they say, well, I know that God has asked us to wait, but, you know, we are living together now because it's like practice for marriage and that will make our marriage better. And God wants us to have a good marriage. Like we never quite say it that way, but we start to buy into these things where it's like, hey, that is what God wants for you. And I know he says this way, but you can actually get there this way. No, you can't. Imagine what would have happened if Jesus chose this moment to say, The kingdoms sound good. I will bow to the devil. But he doesn't. You almost get this sense of how frustrated and annoyed Jesus is. Like, are we really still doing this? And so I love that he just says to him, away with you, Satan. Right? Like, that is the the Greek biblical version of, take a hike. Hit the bricks. We are done here. Okay? And again, he quotes scripture. He knows it even better. That the Bible says, you worship the Lord your God, and him only do you serve. Right out of Deuteronomy again. And so then you see in the last verse, I want to compare this then to one of the New Testament letters that describes how we resist temptation. Because when Jesus says, go away, it says, then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. The enemy tried, the enemy failed. And the enemy's looking for easy targets. In fact, James, when he writes his letter... There's great stuff in James about overcoming temptation if you want a good book to read on that. But one of the things that he tells us is, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That we can actually have victory in all these same areas that Jesus is. That the same way that Jesus resisted is how we resist. And so I think one of the most encouraging things to me coming out of this passage, you and I can banish temptation like Jesus. Banish it. I'm, I'm telling you, earlier in my own walk with Christ, as well as I think just plenty of people that I've talked to, we have a little bit of this Christianese, right? Like we talk about the temptations, we talk about the things around us, and I hear guys talk about pornography or I hear people talk about complaining. And, oh, yeah, I, I really struggle with fill in the blank. And it took me a while to realize I don't really struggle. I think what I mean by struggle is that's the one I give into. <laughs> like, do I really struggle with complaining? Am I, am I really giving my all to not complaining today? Or is that just kind of the one I've gotten used to and, and I do feel bad and then I always say, oh, I shouldn't and I'll try not to and, but I just keep giving in, right? And part of what I found is in my own life is that usually that's happening on whatever it is, like whatever one you're picturing right now. Like the song earlier, you know, um, every dark addiction that may be in your life. I found that in my own life, the reason for that pattern, that struggle became code word for give in, is because I was trying to break through it on my own. 
You feel bad. You tell God you know you shouldn't have, and please don't get mad at me. I promise I won't do it again. And then you go try not to do it again and fail. And so with all the mercy and grace of recognizing we are not perfect, I would love to tell you that, like, standing here today, anybody who raises their hand can be guaranteed never to sin again. Probably not. But if you just take it a moment at a time, a test at a time, a temptation at a time, you and I literally can have the opportunity, like, the next thing I do does not have to be sin. I don't have to give in to this. And I can banish that temptation the same way Jesus does. And the first thing you've got to see is that it's with the Spirit. Jesus, even Jesus, was not alone in the wilderness. The Spirit led him out there. And a lot of times we don't give the Spirit as much airtime as he deserves because when Jesus left earth, he said, crazy, sounds crazy. Jesus is not crazy, but it sounds crazy. It's going to be better for you if I leave. What? The Messiah goes back to heaven is better for us? But he said, the reason is because I'm sending you the Spirit. Jesus could be in one place at one time. The Spirit is with every Christ follower, always, anywhere. And he's a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. So Jesus does this with the Spirit. So can we. It's also with the Word. That Jesus goes into every single temptation. You notice all three of them, he doesn't, he's Jesus, okay? He is God. He can give his own wisdom. And yet everything he did, he pulled straight from the Bible. I love that because I am not Jesus. And I don't know that I should always trust my own wisdom or my own good ideas. Well, I, I had a thought. And maybe, how about this? Where is it in God's word? that tells me if I resist him, he will flee from me. That tells me that I can replace those things. And so one of, the, one of the fun ways that really made sense out of this for me, there's a little book called A Handbook to Prayer. This is by a guy named Ken Boa. And a mentor of mine gave me this, but I would recommend this to you. If you're looking a way to start getting into the word, what I love is this concept is it's just praying scripture back to God. And I'd never encountered that before. And so it, it does not replace your Bible, but it taught me how now anything I read in the Bible, I can turn back into prayer. And so every day, it just has a few different categories. Adoration, right, which is that last way that Jesus fights temptation. He says, I'm not going to worship you. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to keep my focus on him. You know, petition, things you ask for, renewal, things, ways you want to grow, uh, intercession, praying for others, thanksgiving, and so each of those sections just has one or two verses. And essentially all he's done is he's taken actual verses that he's pulled from all over Scripture and kind of paraphrased them, personalized them, so you can pray them back to God. So highly recommended, highly recommended. Um, and I don't recommend a lot of books. But one of my favorite parts that was so scary when I first started this, every day the second part is confession. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, uh-oh, every day? Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes, I, I forget who said it, but this idea that the longer I follow Christ, the less I sin, but the more I repent. The more I realize how much I just need to keep turning back to him. And so one of the things that was so sweet is in this confession section, it always has a verse. And then it always has this. After you read the verse, here's your instructions. Ask the Spirit to search your heart 
and reveal any areas of unconfessed sin. And you got to give them a minute. Acknowledge these to the Lord and thank him for his forgiveness. See, I think so often, especially if there's a temptation that we have, how shall we say, struggled with, we're afraid to come to other people, we're afraid to come to God, and yet in that little promise is the reminder that everything I confess, he already knows. And when I keep it to myself, then it's just whatever power I have in me, right? Whatever, whatever I might come up with. But when I bring it to him, he's not surprised. And I actually discover that in Christ, it's already forgiven. And now I can lean into his word, lean into his spirit, and worship him and overcome. So my question for you as we close is where would you like the victor to give you victory? What is in your heart and mind today that you would say, this, this is what I'm dealing with right now. This is where I'm tempted. This is where I'm in a trial. This is where I'm tested. That you would ask the victor, Jesus Christ, to give you victory. Let's do that right now. Would you pray that right now? I'm, I'm just going to be silent for about a moment that you can lift that to him right now and then I'll close us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, not only to die for us and to rise again for us, but to perfectly live this life of obedience as a human just like us. Lord, that we can just glorify you, Jesus, that we can learn from your example, but that we don't have to take your example and go try to power through it, but that you send your Spirit to walk us through every day. Lord, you know what dark addictions, you know what difficult trials, you know what tests we're going through right now. Um, it, maybe I'm being too bold, but just on behalf of my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ here, can I say, Lord, we're excited to see victory. So would your spirit lead us? Would you bring us the power, the love, the self-control that we need? And God, I would just ask, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.